So again, John chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of our Lord. There's a structure in this passage. In the uh, period of the uh, Renaissance, it was, uh, it was popular to write poetry in such a way uh, that the, the words on the page themselves would actually form uh, a shape. These uh, are called shape uh, poems. And in this passage, we, we, we have something that's akin to that. In this passage, Jesus and his disciples are right at the center, verses 14 through 16. And then ahead of Jesus, in verses 12 through 13, at the beginning of the passage, uh, there's this crowd, and the crowd has movement. The the crowd seems to be pointed towards Jesus, uh, moving towards Jesus. That's at the very beginning of the passage. And then the end of our passage, in verses 17 through 18, uh, uh, behind Jesus, there's a crowd that's coming uh, out of Bethany, almost two miles behind him, but but gains on him. And so you have a crowd behind him now, uh, forming, as it were, another arrow pointing towards the center and you see uh, you see the bow tie don't you you have Jesus flanked by a crowd coming towards him and a crowd following him and then immediately around uh, Jesus uh, is his disciples they're referred to in verse 16 and I think that's the center of the passage just the knot of the bow tie And then we uh, keep this image in mind, and uh, what we find in verse 19 is a phrase that that now intensifies. Verse 19, some Pharisees uh, say to one another in apparent despondent resignation, Look, the whole world has gone after him. And there he is, the center of the world stage at that moment. Looks a lot like a bow tie, doesn't it? Uh, Doug James is a, uh, a well-known professor in computer science at Stanford. Uh, he's well-known because he's extremely intelligent, but he's also well-known for a mathematical model that he, that he produced much earlier uh, in his uh, career. Uh, when I think about a crowd of people encroaching upon Jesus, I think of a myriad of different opinions. What do they think about this Jesus? And uh, I, I think about this illustration uh, from uh, Doug James, this computer model. Uh, he does something rather strange. Uh, I, maybe some of you have heard me mention this. He builds a model that's basically a big pile of plastic chairs. Isn't that odd? 
It's a big pile. It's a quarter mile high. Now, it doesn't exist. It's, it's a virtual model. And what he does is he builds a quarter mile high uh, pile of 3,601 plastic chairs, and he topples them. And what he does is he has created an algorithm uh, that predicts all of the collisions. So uh, it's predicting collisions, but it's also recording these collisions, the nature of these collisions, uh, the number of these uh, collisions. And the quarter-mile-high stack of plastic chairs falls for 14 hours. In over 14 hours, his computer counts 1.6 billion different collisions. That's an interesting model, isn't it? I think there's a lot of application here for how people think about Jesus, uh, almost as if there's 1.6 billion uh, different responses to the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior. But I'm not the first one to turn this computer model into a practical illustration. It was done so for us by David Peskovitz in Wired Magazine. Uh, He writes about this model, and he uses it to describe uh, something about our own life. Our life, over the course of our human life, uh, he says this, he says our walk is infiltrated with limitless collisions. Think about that, he's applying this model. Our walk, our life, is infiltrated with limitless collisions. And here we have this scene where uh, a a rather rare uh, occurrence in the Greek Bible, the phrase large crowd shows up and it describes Jesus in the center of a large crowd, the population of the world as it were, uh, convening upon Jesus Christ. And everyone in that crowd, every soul in that crowd has an opinion about Jesus. And it is remarkable that uh, virtually everyone on our planet has some opinion about Jesus. Now, it's true that uh, there's a lot of uh, evangelism that needs to be done. But just think about it. Almost everyone has heard about Jesus of Nazareth. This Jew from the uh, ancient Middle East. And, and for everyone who has heard about him, everyone has some opinion about him. And what I want us to see this morning is that the crowds of people uh, that surround Jesus, they're all aware of him. They see him. They know a thing or two about him. They have some kind of response towards him. Uh, In this way, Jesus is himself unavoidable. The crowd of Jesus' day walk through life with limitless collisions, but right before their very eyes is Jesus of Nazareth. One of those collisions is a collision with the Son of God. He's entered their world. He's in many ways disrupted their world. And here we are on Palm Sunday, and we're looking at this passage from John 12, where uh, Jesus uh, interacts with the entire world of the day, but he's interacting with our world today. You here this morning... You're interacting with Jesus. We're reading the Word of God about the Son of God. He's entered our world. I want us to hear this morning that He's uh, done more than simply enter our world. He has disrupted our world. He has caused a myriad of collisions with Him. He's not left us to our own devices. This Jesus must be dealt with. He must be dealt with. You see, he doesn't just float through this world, he interacts. Even in this scene, he, uh, in the center of our passage, he asserts something about himself on that world stage for all to see. 
And today, every person, every person must respond to this Jesus, collide with this Jesus. But not just Jesus as a man, the the existence of Jesus, but Jesus as a man who makes an assertion because in the center of this passage, he makes an assertion. Jesus asserts that he is the only king who brings true peace. Well, there's a bit of the structure of the passage. Let's begin with uh, the first uh, two verses. Uh, Here, uh, John's describing to us the the first crowd, the the crowd that I'll call is uh, the crowd that's before him. Uh, There's a crowd behind him, of course. Now, uh, this crowd before him uh, doesn't necessarily want the king who brings peace. I'm going to argue that what John is sharing with us in this passage is this crowd coming towards Jesus is a crowd that, that essentially misunderstands Jesus. Uh, What they really want about Jesus is they want Jesus to be a tool of theirs. That's the operative word. Verses 12 through 13 show us that this crowd actually wants Jesus to be a tool. The passage opens, verse 12, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming. Now, what's the occasion for their being in Jerusalem? It's clear. The Passover celebration, it's happening right now. And the population of Jerusalem during this time every year soared. Perhaps as many as two and a half million people have descended upon four square mile patch of land called Jerusalem. John says that the large crowd that was uh, present at this event, he says in verse 12 uh, that this large crowd heard that Jesus was coming. This is almost... Difficult to believe. The largest crowd of the year gathering in Jerusalem. And John uh, seems to intone in verse 12 that everyone heard that Jesus was coming. Everyone in that large crowd? Well, the news, it must have been contagious. John uses this expression, large crowd, six times in his gospel. Here's the last time he used it. And he uses it because he means it. An enormous crowd. But it seems to be a crowd that, well, they've actually heard about this Jesus. But then John goes further and he actually captures some of the response of this crowd. It it isn't just that simple, uh, the large crowd heard Jesus. We can only imagine the variety of opinions of this large crowd. They've heard of Jesus, but they have opinions about Jesus. Uh, it's, there's a sense in which uh, each of them uh, are challenged with the question that Martin Lloyd-Jones asked of his immediate audience. Uh, what do you think of Jesus? Everyone needs to respond to that. And so, large crowd, they hear about Jesus. What do they think about him? There's a sense in which there could be <laughs> 1.6 billion different opinions about who this Jesus is as he collides with the world. But it seems to me that John outlines uh, two general responses that coincide with the crowd before him. Well, with the crowd, one response for the crowd before, one response for the crowd after. And I've said, I think this crowd before him, uh, I think they're they're seeing Jesus as a tool of theirs. Notice uh, something that happens in in verse uh, 13. Uh, Members of the crowd, they they went out to meet Jesus. Uh, John makes it uh, sound like an entire large crowd squeezes through that eastern gate to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, But they don't go in the gate. They uh, all at once, in mass, they all seem to... uh, squeeze out of that gate to meet 
Jesus. There's motion in verse 13. This is interesting. You, you remember what the Passover celebration is about. The Passover celebration starts in Exodus chapter 12. It's the story of a people uh, being delivered out of Egypt. And they're delivered uh, out of Egypt. They exit Egypt into the wilderness where they are to worship and serve God. Now, uh, what happens over time, we know this, is that they don't want to worship God. They don't want to serve God. Uh, They want to be a nation like Egypt. They want to have all of the rights and the luxuries of the land that they left. They're an ungrateful people as they as they rush out of Egypt, and, and we have a bit of an image of that here in our passage, that uh, a large crowd squeezing through the gates of the city, uh, running out to meet Jesus. It's a very poignant image of the Hebrew people running out to worship God and then rebelling against him in the wilderness. And while their response here in uh, John chapter 12 isn't immediately clear, uh, their response has to do with with a praise of some sort. Look what they're doing. Uh, We read that some took branches of palm trees and uh, seemingly they they waved them in the air, laid them on the ground before Jesus. Now this is a complex, complex image to unpack. In Jesus' day, the palm tree was a well-recognized symbol for the strength and vigor of God's people. Uh, pulling from Psalm 92.12, these words, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. In between the Old and the New Testament, between Malachi and the birth of John the Baptist is uh, some uh, 400 years. And during uh, that period of time, uh, the tree, the palm tree, actually becomes a symbol of national permanence, uh, national indestructibility. In fact, uh, during those few short years when Israel had independence uh, from Rome, uh, the image of the palm was stamped on the coinage of Israel of that time. So palm branches are a symbol of uh, the nation, but palm branches are also, and this is why the image is complex, they're also a symbol of joyfulness. They're a symbol of celebration, to be waved before God as a praise. That's actually commanded in Leviticus 23, that palms will be be waved before God as a praise. And then as the palm, the symbol of the nation, is being waved in praise in accordance with Leviticus 23, they cry out words that we heard earlier in our service, words from Psalm 118, Hosanna. And it's an appeal for victory. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Give us success. That's the phrase that shows up in Psalm 118, verse 25. Give us success. So they're waving branches in celebration. They're suggesting that salvation has uh, been secured, but the branches are a symbol of the nation, and so there's some uh, security that comes to the nation, and joyful praise is due, and the gesture becomes a rapturous display of national victory. Now, it's plain to see what they want. They want a national hero. That's the need of their day. And this actually becomes a template through which they uh, see Jesus. The large number of Jews currently in the city uh, are inspiring them to long for the day when the city is no longer a Roman city populated by Jews, but a Jewish city populated by a large crowd of the Jewish people. They want a nation, and the so-called king of the Jews is here to give it to them. 
Well, I want you to entertain the notion that much of what they see and expect about Jesus is, is they want a tool. What they have here is a, is a picture uh, of uh, Jesus Christ coming into the city, picking up on motifs of kingship, and they share their heart of what their heart's true desire is. We have a picture of an audience that wants to transmute Jesus' story into their own life's needs. They have needs. They have desires. They have wants. And they believe that Jesus can give that to them. Uh, theirs is, if you will, an, a utilitarian view of Jesus as the great sugar daddy of the sky that has the power to overturn every obstacle of their lives. He's the Swiss army, life that, the far, army knife that can get things done. Greatest tool in the world. Now that, that view is reverberating in that crowd that's before Jesus. Here comes the tool that will do what we need him to do. But there's a crowd behind him, verses 17 and 18. Now, this is a different crowd. John's clear in John chapter 12. But uh, I want to challenge us that if the crowd in front is looking to Jesus as a tool, the crowd in back is looking to him as something else. I think the crowd behind him is looking to Jesus as a, uh, not a tool, but as a spectacle of some sort. Now, John is actually very clear uh, about this crowd because he says in verse 18, uh, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. It's verse 18. John's telling us the reason why this crowd went to meet him. It's the sign. What's the sign? Days earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. These people, they, they heard of the event. Maybe some of them witnessed the event. And they followed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, just a little bit of background before uh, I continue. Earlier in John chapter 12, we read again of these large crowds. In John 12, verse 9, we read, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, he came. Not on, uh, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There's something about that sign that has gripped the people. Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was common for crowds to follow Jesus because he is uh, uh, doing spectacular things. There's another instance in John chapter 6. A large crowd was following Jesus. Why were they following Jesus? Because they saw the sign that he was doing on the sick. That's John 6 verse 2. It was common for people to follow Jesus merely because he is working signs. Well, what are we to make of this? If you look at verse 18, there's something unique about it, but it doesn't show up in the English. There are cues in verse 18 that help us understand what it is that these crowds are thinking at this particular moment. The commentators notice that the words in verse 18 in the Greek, they're, they're actually arranged in an, in an unusual way. The words uh, John arranges in a way that would suggest that this crowd is motivated by one single thing, that Jesus performs signs. Uh, Herman Ritterboss in his commentary on John suggests that the, the best way to read this very verse, verse 18, is like this. Listen carefully. You can look at verse 18 in front of you. Ritterboss says that uh, we should read it like this. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, and only this reason was that they heard he had done this sign. 
There's something about the tone of this passage that would suggest that the people uh, don't come with sincere hearts. Uh, A rather dour picture is painted here. Uh, The crowd behind Jesus is mesmerized by the work of Jesus because of the signs. He heals. He raises people from the dead. Let's follow him. Now, what this interpretation suggests is that when we read in verse 17 of the crowd of people who witness the miracle of Lazarus, the fact that they continue to bear witness does not necessarily mean that they bear witness rightly. Look at verse 17. John doesn't tell us that they bear witness rightly about who Jesus is. John does not say here that they bore witness of the saving work of Jesus, that he would be resurrected, that those who believe on him would be resurrected themselves, uh, that he is himself the resurrection and the life, and that whoever believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. The text wouldn't suggest that that's what they bear witness to. They're bearing witness to a man who does amazing things. He's a spectacle in their eyes. Their testimony of verse 17 was merely that he heals sick people, raises uh, dead people from uh, uh, into life. Uh, what else might he possibly do? Well, there's no one who can do things like this man can do. Let's therefore follow him. And so the image is one of an insatiable crowd of people hungry for more, more miracles, more magic, more sensation. Uh, They've been caught up in the contemporary sweep of good fortune. Uh, People who, as it were, are living in the age of the Beatles who know that at this moment in time, it's one that's going to become unrivaled in the annals of rock and roll history. Here we are with this Jesus how fortuitous a moment it is. And so the crowd behind Jesus is following him into the city, following him to see more. He is the greatest spectacle, and they want to be in the front row. If the crowd in front wanted a tool, a tool that would uh, deliver, uh, deliver the goods, do the work that they needed done, if the crowd on the front wanted a tool, the crowd behind wanted a spectacle to talk about and share with their friends And so it makes sense that they would follow him. John says that uh, they are the crowd that has been with him. Verse 17. It's almost as if uh, they are groupies. Groupies uh, always follow their leader, don't they? Now, very quickly, I want us to leave the crowd before at the beginning of the passage. The crowd that's looking for Jesus to be a tool. And I want to leave the crowd behind Jesus. The crowd that is looking to Jesus to be a spectacle. And I want us to look at the center of the passage. Right there in verses 14, 15, and 16 is where we see Jesus. We need to note that not everyone in the crowd pouring out of Jerusalem is as I have described. And not everyone pouring out of Bethany is as I have described. And many see Jesus through the lens of utility, uh, what he can do for them, but not all. And many in the crowd see Jesus through the lens of spectacle. Uh, What's he going to do next to dazzle us? But not all. We know that there are some in Jerusalem who know Jesus and trust him for salvation. But we can say more than this. In the very center of the passage, we have a man, the son of man, who is confronting both the expectation that he's a tool and the expectation that he is a mere spectacle. And let me tell you what I mean by this. Jesus doesn't look to the crowds to determine his next step. Pay attention to a couple of things. The first is this. Jesus looks to the will of the Father 
You see that in the center of our passage. Jesus actually turns to Holy Scripture. He takes note not of the will of the crowd in front of him that want a tool. He takes note of the will of his Father. In John's words, Jesus uh, found a young donkey and sat on it. How? Why? Just as it is written. That's very important for us to notice. The large crowd before Jesus desires that he would be a tool. Uh, They perceive uh, their need for a political uh, independence of some sort. They have a desire to be a great nation. They have a special hatred of their Roman occupiers. But none of those needs of the people, wishes of the people control our Jesus. Jesus does what? He does the will of God. That's the first thing to notice here in the center of our passage. And the second thing to notice is this, is that as he does the will of God, he actually uh, does not create a spectacle. Uh, Look what he does. Jesus finds a young donkey. He does something that is inconspicuously common and even unexpected. Now, there is an important image here, isn't there, about the donkey. He is asserting what is happening. Jesus is actually governing the events uh, of this particular scene. Uh, and he conveys an image from Zechariah 9. That's the image of, a, of the coming peaceful king. But notice that the crowd's desire for a spectacle, well, it's not granted. Jesus quietly follows the will of the Father takes control of the scene, finds a donkey. He, he sits on the donkey. He heals no one. He raises no one from the dead. He sits on the donkey and he rides somberly into the city saying nothing, performing nothing. Now there's a couple of things that are happening here in the center of the passage. The one who wants Jesus to be their tool is disappointed because Jesus won't follow them. Jesus only follows the will of the Father. And the ones who want Jesus to be a spectacle don't get what they hope for because Jesus quietly and demurely follows the will of the Father without spectacle. He just rides. I think both of those things are very important for us to notice in this passage. This is Jesus who is taking command over all of the collisions of responses around him. He asserts the will of the Father and he obeys. Now, what is critical is that the men who are nearest to Jesus, geographically but also emotionally, they're called disciples in our passage, verse 16. The men who are closest to Jesus, nearest to him, who have the greatest understanding of who Jesus is. Notice what John tells us about them in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. My brothers and sisters, we believe in a God who has come to us. Jesus Christ, God with us, that he is the son of God, that he has assumed uh, human nature. He has interacted in time and space. He is here with us. That's what the Bible tells us. But notice from John chapter 12 that Jesus' mere presence throws the world in topsy-turvy. Everyone wants to know what he's going to do. Everyone wants to know who he is. No other man is like him. 
And there are some who think they have the upper hand and they're going to use this man to be a tool of their own devising to get what they want. They think that's what Jesus is for. And the ones behind, they want to use Jesus as a spectacle, as someone to be marveled at, uh, the greatest human being ever to walk on the face of the earth, the greatest religious shaman, the, the, the most powerful moralist of the world, a spectacle of some sort. But, but Jesus, Jesus doesn't satisfy those wishes. Jesus comes to perform the will of God. And not even his disciples understand everything that's unfolding in this particular scene. Now, it's important for us to see that, and you'll, you'll see when I get to the end. Remember what I said earlier, that Jesus doesn't just uh, float through the world. Jesus actually interacts with the world. He makes demands of us. We must respond to Jesus. We have to deal with him. He is entered time and space. He has asserted authority. He is interacting. And sometimes I wonder if many of us think, of, think about Jesus as like a, a floating helium balloon. It's slowly losing its air and it's at eye level. And we can uh, push it out of the way, flick it uh, out of our field of vision. Well, Jesus doesn't just float through the world like that. You, you can't just manipulate him, push, them off, push him off to the side. He asserts something about himself, and he does it on the stage of the world for all to see. And that means that today, every person here must respond to Jesus, must collide with Jesus, the existence and the assertion of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus asserts something. He is the king And he is the only king who can bring true peace. He's the the great gift of grace. You don't have to understand the role of Jesus immediately, apparently. Look, his disciples, uh, they don't quite understand him immediately. Uh, But this is Palm Sunday this morning. Uh, We have this uh, time in history, on a small scale to be sure, uh, to be greeted with this Jesus who comes and he frustrates our understanding. He he is uh, independent of us. And that's what I want us to hear on Palm Sunday. The Palm Sunday in John chapter 12 was a Palm Sunday in the history of the world that was filled with confusion. And you can actually be confused about Jesus today, but you have to listen to these two things. You may want to see Jesus or use Jesus as a tool. You cannot do that. He is not your tool. And you may think of Jesus as merely a spectacle, someone who's just an important figure in world history, uh, like a a political leader or or an athlete or a band. But you, you can't look at Jesus merely as a spectacle to marvel at him. He's more. And there's perhaps even some of uh, those temptations in the disciples too. What they needed to see was Jesus glorified. What the disciples needed to see was Jesus resurrected. What the disciples needed is they needed the continued teaching of Jesus in his glorified body. What the disciples needed is they needed the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of these were necessary for them to unpack and understand what exactly was happening on Palm Sunday in John chapter 12. And I want to say to you this morning on Palm Sunday here at Covenant Presbyterian Church, you have access to all of those things that you too might understand who Jesus is. He is resurrected. He has taught in his glorified body in Scripture, and you have the ministry of the Holy Spirit that grants understanding. There there is 
there is confusion about who this Jesus is. And I want to give you permission to acknowledge that confusion. But at the same time, know this. Your confusion does not define who Jesus is. His disruption is even more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Some of you may know the name Billy Collins. In the early part uh, of uh, the 2000s, he was uh, the poet laureate of our country. And now he's a professor. Billy Collins, uh, as a professor, uh, wrote a poem called Introduction to Poetry. And I think it tells, it can teach us something here as I conclude this sermon. What Billy Collins uh, is describing is he's describing uh, what it's like to teach uh, young students how to read poetry. He says he, he asks them to, uh, to uh, take a poem and hold it up to the light uh, like a color slide or, uh, press, or like you would press an ear against its hive. Uh, he, he wants them to study a poem, and they don't get the point. Uh, they don't study the poem correctly. Uh, he says at the very end of the poem, he says, I want them to study the poem, but what they do is they take the poem, they tie it to a chair with rope, and they torture a confession out of it. I love that picture. They torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. But what's the corrective? Billy Collins is a teacher of poetry. Here's the corrective. He says what he wants is he wants to drop them like a mouse inside the poem. And he wants to watch them probe their way in it. He wants them to walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. He says, I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, uh, waving at the author's name on the shore. Evocative image, dropping a mouse inside the poem, and he wants the the mouse to live there for a while, to discover what's there. It's painful because it's not the mouse's world. The the mouse didn't create that world. But according to Billy Collins, the only way you're going to understand a poem Palm Sunday is an opportunity for us to be dropped into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Do we have expectations for what Jesus ought to do for us and ought to be to us? Absolutely, we do. Palm Sunday is an invitation to consider how you've been treating Jesus. Jesus doesn't just float through this world, and many here this morning think that he does. He is that slowly deflating helium balloon that can be pushed out of the way. You've been pushing him out of the way for years. He's just one of those 1.6 billion distractions of your life. But good thing for you, he's movable. It's Palm Sunday. He's not movable. Those who uh, don't believe uh, can find Jesus to be a tool to get something. Uh, Jesus is a tool to get respectability or a deliverance from illness or a guarantee of blessings. And usually what we mean is uh, Jesus gets me money or he gets me the good life. But Jesus isn't your tool. If you're here and you're not a believer, know that. You can't approach him that way. And there are some who don't believe in Jesus, but they find Jesus to be a spectacle of some sort, a a historic anomaly of an important figure, uh, a great moral man, uh, a a great uh, religious teacher, uh, a miraculous man. But he's not your spectacle. You can't look at him that way. So mark that off the list. He's not a tool that you can use, and he's not a spectacle to uh, make your fancy delight. But here's where I want to conclude as a reminder to those who are my brothers and sisters and a reminder to myself. When people who are not believers treat Jesus that way as a tool or as a spectacle, 
What they need is a gospel reminder that this shoving away of Jesus, flicking him out of the field of vision, is going to come to an end in your life. And it's going to come to an end when this Jesus Christ stands solidly before you and he will not, and you will not be moving him out of the way. He's going to be moving you out of the way. Matthew 25 says he'll sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's the mover, not you. I want to say that it's a part of the gospel. But I have a message for us as believers. You and I, we need to be reminded that we often ourselves treat Jesus as if we can slide him back and forth through the air, move him from the center of our view. We can be caught professing that he's our savior and our Lord and our king, but we can treat him like a man of small proportions and shove him out of the way. We've been invited to live in his story and find our existence in his story, the story of redemption that is our salvation and that is our peace. We've been invited to do that, and yet we seem to always be uh, looking to tie Jesus to a chair and analyze him, torture him, use him as a tool, see him as a spectacle. Now, I'm speaking to Christians, and I'm speaking to myself. We use Jesus as a tool when we use him to get our own will. We expect him to do things for us like uh, uh, make all of our obstacles go away. And he doesn't do that. Read John chapter 17. We're left in this world and the world is full of obstacles. It is for God's glory and his will that we would be here and that we would uh, suffer by his grace. We live here as exiles until our Lord and Savior returns again. But we can't use him as a tool, make all of our foes go away. And we also can't use him uh, as a spectacle. We refuse to submit to his saving purposes personally. And we hold him at a distance. And we look at him almost as if we would look at a curio that's in a a cabinet or a model of something that's under a, a plexiglass top. He's not a spectacle. He is with you. His presence is here today. You can't manipulate him, hold him up, turn him around that you would be uh, made to feel uh, joyful and fanciful because you figured him out. He doesn't belong to you as a tool. He doesn't belong to you as a spectacle. It's Palm Sunday. As Christians, we have an opportunity to acknowledge our impatience refusing to suffer for the glory of our good king, wanting to turn him into a tool. And it's a time for us as Christians to acknowledge our arrogance, the the fact that uh, we want to turn Jesus into uh, something that we can study and analyze, but someone who doesn't have a relationship with us. We hold him at a distance. There's a myriad of ways of understanding uh, how we see Jesus as a tool and how we see Jesus as a spectacle. But it's Palm Sunday. He's the king who brings peace. Palm Sunday is about one who is coming, who is not the one we think we need, but we do. And Jesus has in his mind at this moment, Zechariah chapter 9. Do you, do you believe that? At this moment, Jesus has in his mind, Zechariah chapter 9. And what do we read in 9 verse 11? Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
We're in far more danger than we could possibly imagine. But God, because he is a promise-keeping God, has given us the blood of the covenant that we would have salvation. Uh, Zechariah 9 quotes Exodus chapter 24 uh, when the people are, are reminded of the Ten Commandments and their failure to keep those Ten Commandments and they're sprinkled with blood, the blood of the sacrifice. Christian, this Jesus is not a tool. And this Jesus is not a spectacle. He is the blood that covers you, that you might be eternally reconciled to God. He is the blood that brings you into a relationship with God that is everlasting. He is the one who puts all of your present struggles and all of your present doubts in proper perspective. They will be with you, but for a time. It's Palm Sunday. He's not a tool, and he's not a spectacle. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have taken the initiative to come to us. We thank you that you have not allowed us to be the problem solvers of our own lives. And we're thankful that you uh, have not given us Jesus as uh, a a dancing monkey in front of us to uh, entertain us. You've come to us. You've saved us, and we praise you for that as we go from this place. Would you draw us closer to yourself? Because we praise you that you have come to us. In Jesus' name, amen.